1: So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now a part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I've got a great returning guest, uh, Robert A. Gattenby. He's a professor at the Moffitt Cancer Center. Um, and I'm going to ask him questions of, uh, in regards to the cancer book that I'm putting together. Uh, you may have heard, if you're a listener, that we did a virus book a few months ago. It's now on Amazon and Kindle. You just type in "Finding Genius" on Amazon or Kindle, and soon to be Audible. You can pick up the virus book. It's got some really provocative, super interesting questions, I think. And our goal here is to do the same with cancer. So, Robert, thanks for coming back.
2: Thanks for having
1: me. All right. So, so to start off, um, do you believe that cancer is a is a living entity unto itself? You know, have its own homeostatic drive and essentially, you know, self-preservation agency and, and all that? Or do you think it's, it's really just a collection of, of rogue cells that don't work together?
2: Well, I, I think th- there's, from an evolutionary point of view, each cancer cell is the unit of selection. Uh, th- this is the evolutionary unit of selection, meaning that they act like they're single-cell organisms. However, like other individual uh, organisms, they can act as groups. So herds, for example, is, you know, each individual within the herd is the unit of selection, but the herd can act in ways that promotes the uh, fitness of each individual member. And these are sometimes called LE effects, if it, and LE, and in fact, even Darwin notices that as as, population, as some populations get larger, the, the usual rules of evolution would be that the proliferation rate, their fitness Goes down because the, their population is approaching some kind of a of a limit, you know, in the carrying capacity. But it often goes up. That is to say, the proliferation rate goes up, and this is because individuals can benefit from the presence of others. And they, they sometimes that can be safety, but but sometimes there can be better acquisition of resources and and so forth. So I think the cancers have that component as well because they each cancer cell. Is its own entity, but cancer cells also have to act loosely in terms in groups to 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 do what's called niche construction. They have to, uh, for example, promote uh, blood vessels to come in to provide nutrients. Uh, They have to break down extracellular matrix, and probably they act together to overcome the immune system. So I, I guess that's a long answer, but I think there's there's nothing in cancer that is inconsistent with what goes on in evolution in living systems. It, there's nothing magic about it. Non-negal entity, I don't think it has agency in the sense that it, it, it acts in a, in, a, in a willful way. In fact, I, I think specifically does not do that. And so, and so I, I think it's, it's a straightforward uh, evolutionary process. I think that the cells start as normal and become independent of tissue organization structures of, of rules. And therefore, they begin to proliferate on their own where, they're, where they, their survival, their, their death or their proliferation is dependent upon their own properties and not signals from the environment. And that, that dependence well, on their own properties is what allows them to evolve.
1: If normal cells as part of a tissue, though, are essentially working for the, you know, I don't know how to put this, working for the greater good, working for the good of the <laughs> tissue or their localized group. What, what is it about cells then that changes in cancer that makes them independent for a time? And at what point do they rejoin some kind of collective? Like if I have a tumor of, you know, a tiny one of a hundred cells, are they acting mm-hmm. as one or it's only at the billion cell stage it acts as one? Like what, what are your thoughts here that's as to why is there a difference between normal cells and cancer cells? What is that difference? Sure.
2: Well, normal cells have the same fitness function as the multicellular organism their life and death is dependent on the survival of that of the organism and of tissues of signals from the organism so if the organism the local tissue tells a normal cell to die you know it's time for you to die because i need you to die for for whatever reason the cell dies and if it says i need you to proliferate the cell proliferates so the proliferation survival death are all dependent upon these tissue signals, so that the cells are essentially subservient to the to kind of this master organization of the multicellular organism. Cancer cells become independent of those signals, and and I think they can become independent because they essentially become you know deaf and blind. You know they 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 become unable to receive those signals. But the other thing that can happen is the tissue itself can cannot give the signals because of age, because of uh, of illness, because of trauma because of infection so that now the 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 cancer cells are proliferating or dying or or surviving based on how they interact with the environment rather than the tissue uh signals so they're they're completely independent of local host controls and as a result they have what's called a self-defined fitness function So, so they're now out there evolving same way as any you know single cell organism in the middle of a pond or you know, under, under the dirt, you know, in, in, in our gardens and, and so forth. They, they, so I think that the, the cells never really act as a single age, as a single organism, but they, they can get into these loose areas where they can promote uh, environmental changes that promote the fitness of all the, of each member of that community, which, which again is observed in nature as through what are called the aggregation effects, allele effects, and so forth so i don't I think that the individual cancer cell is always the unit of selection, but there can be you know these organizational structures that develop within the, the tumor that simply develop spontaneously because of the need to make big blood vessels to uh, fight back the immune cells and so forth
1: yeah like if I picture a tumor of let's say you know a billion cells and it's one centimeter in diameter, you know and there there starts to emerge let's say a hypoxic or an anoxic zone in the middle. <laughs> You know, the the tumor appears to say, all right, let's turn on angiogenesis to get blood flow to the inner part of the tumor. But Mm -hmm. again, it seems to be acting in concert in some way.
2: So what 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 happens is, of course, that each cell in that region becomes hypoxic. And so it begins to produce VEGF or, or other angiogenic factors. That's what the cells do. That's their natural response. So now you have a group of cells that are all hypoxic that are all producing VEGF. Each one of them is doing it because of their local conditions, but in effect, the whole group is now sending lots of VEGF out, and so the signal um, goes to uh, local blood vessels and and it begins to send sprouts in and so forth. So it's it's individuals acting at a local individual level, but because you have a group of individuals that are subjected to the same environmental stresses, they're 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 effectively they're they're acting in Concert, so it, it would look like they're cooperating with each other, and, and in fact, they're simply all doing the same response that in, that sums up. And and so, since they're all making veg, the amount of veg that's coming from that region is is increased, and it will promote the influx of of, of vessels. But but the, but the, the cells, you know, the, the, the vessels that come in are are always uh, poorly constructed.
1: Including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast dot com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show.
2: Because as soon as the the you know blood flow to this area goes up, the VEGF is turned off, and there's no evolutionary imperative. For them to do what happens in normal tissue next, which is to to revise the blood vessels to even the flow to every region in the tissue. There, there's once the cells have their oxygen, there's they they have no reason, you know, to, to help out anybody else in the in the tissue. So there's no cooperation in that sense. I got so you. it's a very limited uh, form of, of of sort of group actions.
1: How do you think cancer first arises and? When it arises, what do you think the first abilities are? Do you think it's unlimited proliferation or is it immune system evasion? Like, how do you think it first starts? Well,
2: I'll, I'll go with what I, I you know, my, my own view is that it first has to become the unit of selection. It, it has to be independent of the local tissue controls so that its proliferation is uh, dependent on its, own fat, on its own fitness, and then it will evolve so I think that it's there's probably not one pathway. I think there's probably you know many pathways to becoming an independent living organism within the, the, the you know single cell organism within the tissue, and and so I, I think it it sort of depends on where you start. I guess that my it, it, my uh, analogy here are cavefish. If you you know even Darwin was aware of cavefish. They they live in the you know, total darkness of the cave. And because of that, they lose their eyes and they lose their pigment and they get sort of exaggerated tactile uh, organs. And for decades, people thought that they were all the same species. And it turns out there's 85 different species that give rise, fish species that give rise to the cave morph. And what happens is that it's, a, it's convergent evolution. They all become virtually identical. They all, they all develop the same phenotypic responses to the cave, but they do so through all kinds of different genetic pathways, because they all start—you know—each species will come in at a different uh, sort of genetic point, and even different individuals from the same species can come in at different genetic points. So that the, the, the evolutionary arc to that convergent phenotype uh, um, can vary, and so I, I think that um, similar to cancer. Um, Certain things, I think there's clearly something that have to come come early, and something that probably come a bit later. But but I don't think that there's a rule that says that this this is you know each step goes in this way. I think it's a, it's that kind of convergent evolution that develops to uh, common selection forces.
1: Okay, all right, makes sense.
2: Many years ago, I, I always thought of cancer as like a little ball of cells developing. You know, you start with one or two, and then it, it's just, it's just a ball of cells. But in fact, cancers develop in a, in a very specific geometry. For example, a, a breast cancer or pancreatic cancer or prostate cancer develops in a duct. So initially, the duct is, uh, you know, has a, a lumen, and then there's just a, a layer of epithelial cells
0: you know, around that
2: lumen. Tumors grow into the duct initially. So they're growing into this hollow space. The blood vessels stay on the other side. Of the basement membrane, so they, they can't go into the duct, so that they, they these these guys are growing into the center of the duct, further and further away from their blood vessels. So there's a distinctive geometry to the beginnings of a cancer, but but what it what it is not is a ball of cells. It's cells developing in these, uh, you know, in a circular or cylindrical geometry or on a, on a spatial surf on a on a surface. and, and so it's not a ball of cells. And I think that we often portray it as that, and I think that's misleading.
1: What what do you think better exemplifies the morphology of it? What does it actually look like instead of just a ball of cells? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to
0: subscribe and review us on iTunes.
2: Well, I think what you what you'll see is cells growing into a duct and you know forming almost a cylinder of cells. Now eventually they have to break through the duct to become a cancer. So those are all what are called in-situ cancers. But the early evolutionary dynamics of of in-situ cancers, meaning before it becomes an invasive cancer, is dominated by the environmental selection forces that are in the duct. And and they're imposed because the duct has a specific geometry. And that geometry limits, for example, the blood vessels. They they, they can't penetrate the, the, the basement membrane. And typically, you don't see immune cells extensively involved in this so these are so these are guys that are evolving to the into that into that environment and and so then they eventually break through and that's when they first begin to have to get angiogenesis and they have to get get the immune system they have to deal with uh, extracellular matrix uh, so and so that's what I mean I, I think there's sort of general uh constraints because of the because the environment in which Cancers develop is not static. They they and again it's not a ball of cells that just get bigger. It's it's first it's a if it's in a duct. So those are, this, that would be called adenocarcinomas that, that arise in ducts. If, if they arise in a duct, then the first thing that they do is is that they they have this, this cylindrical morphology to deal with, and then afterwards they get you know this other set of 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 environmental stresses that they have to deal with. So so there is a well, sequence in that sense, but I think otherwise it's pretty much any different way. I mean, you can develop it in a number of different ways.
1: Well, speaking of, of, I guess I'll call it microenvironment, what would you expect to see in the microenvironment of a primary tumor versus metastases? Because metastases, you have cell type A in environment B or tissue mm-hmm.
2: B. Yes, that, 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 that's a very good point. So the cancer cells, let's, let's say we, we have a breast cancer, the, those cells have adapted to the breast environment. If they show up in the liver now they're they're really faced with a, a totally different environment different selection forces and because they have adapted to the environment of the breast does not mean that they uh, are adapted to the environment of the liver and they, and so they have to e- either adapt or die and and if you look at you know how foreign species move into areas so they they' start invading a, an area if they coming like birds that they come in from a distance so so you often get multiple different introductions and, and before one actually sticks and you actually get a population forming um, it often depends on the size of the of the introduction if you just have a single individual the the chance of of that uh individual put right in i is, is low it also depends of course on how similar the the new environment is to the old environment also, whether they, you know, how adaptive they are, how, how plastic their phenotype is, and so forth. So, and we're, we're probably very lucky because of those evolutionary dynamics because it, it seems, you know, the, the, what we know is that metastases are very rare. You, you can throw thousands, or if not millions, of cells into the blood supply of a, of, a, of a mouse, for example, and only get one or two metastases. Uh, once they, Impact on this foreign soil, most of the time they die. So, and, and for us, that's very important because we don't get, uh, I mean, we know that uh, cancers, a large primary cancers, shed millions of cells, and yet metastatic disease is, is rare. You know, you can find cancer cells in the bone marrow of patients with very localized breast cancer and lung cancer that, that never you know, try out to, to have metastatic disease.
1: Yeah, well, why do you think metastases are rare? And what, you know, like I know there's a seed and soil hypothesis, but why yeah. do you think they form and why are they rare?
2: Well, I think it's, it's exactly that, that the, the seed and soil is, is uh, poorly matched to the time. But, you know, when it, whenever well, you but have...
1: But why, uh, why would cancers have tropisms for certain tissues from metastatic sites? It seems like that, right?
2: It does seem that way. And, and the answer is I, I don't really know. Um, but 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 it does, it's clearly not random. So there, there there must be something about the host tissue and, you know, the tumor that's developing that is, is more, it more easily, so for example, a prostate cancer can more easily adapt to the bone than, let's say, a liver cancer, which rarely goes to the bone. And why, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I have the foggiest idea, but it, it, I think it's generally believed that the, that the site of a metastasis is governed in part by the number of cells that go there. So uh, the liver, for example, is, drains the, the colon. So a colon cancer is going to send a lot of uh, cells in the, into the uh, liver, and just by statistics alone, it's more likely to find a um, you know, select one that happens or find one that happens to be uh, able to, to proliferate in the liver. But it's also then based on that um that match between the seed and soil. And um, well, well, what
1: about um what about cancers that metastasize to the brain? They have to get through the blood brain barrier. It seems like that would be the last agreed. place a metastasis would go.
2: I, I completely agree. I mean and you know, again, I think I, I think it's it's just it's fortunate. It's just it's just rare. I mean, the fact that you can have, you know, two or three metastasis in the brain, you know, unfortunately for clinically could be fatal. But you know it may have been billions of, of cancer cells that passed through the brain you know prior to that and that didn't form metastasis and it's interesting that like a glioblastoma a primary brain cancer you can you can find glioblastoma cells in circulation and yet virtually never does it spread to any other part of the body so so i think i would probably say that that seed and soil d- difference is simply too great to be bridged by the phenotypic heterogeneity that you know is underlying it. So anyway, that I, I view it as a as a rare event, but it, it it happens because you have so many um, events, you have so many cancer cells circulating in the blood, that eventually one of them hits you know, by
1: chance alone. Oh, Gotcha. So even um, though uh, it's it's rare, someone with liver cancer, they'll very likely as time goes on get metastases with certain tropisms for certain tissues, but even even though again it, it's still it's only the occasional cell that you're saying will cause this. There's enough of them that it does happen pretty reliably.
2: Yes. And so I, I in 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 some ways I think we're very fortunate. We we as human beings are fortunate that our cancers don't are not that effective in forming a But of course, unfortunately it does happen enough that that typically is what distinguishes a curable cancer from a non curable cancer, the, the the presence of metastatic disease. So it's you know, it's a it, it, you know it, whatever it does happen it's it's
1: tragic but has anyone done a study of uh, neoplasms versus cancerous tumors and to see what the differences are because you have some of the same behavior you know a mass yeah. proliferative growth i mean have you, has anyone looked at that
2: you know i i think that's always been a, an issue so benign tumors like a uterine fibroid for example can be absolutely enormous and it can take you know clearly those cells proliferated at a wild rate for a while and then stopped. And why did they stop? And, and the, the, the answer is, I don't know. And I think that's a really good question. And I, it probably has not received enough, enough investigation. I think a, a, a typical answer would be that it doesn't have the mutations that are required to make it a cancer. You know, they, it falls short of that for some reason. You know a, a, another explanation I think would be that the host develops a, a response and, uh, that that ultimately uh, stops growth and And I, I think either of those or both could be the answer.
1: How about in a in a given cancer that has metastasized, have there been studies where they do like single cell sequencing and attempt to reconstruct in a three d way uh, the clonal lineages of the variations in a tumor? And also compare, you know, primary versus metastases and look at the, you know, again, the mutations and the heterogeneity and see if you can see lineage and trace back what formed first and then next and next. Has anyone done that? Yes,
2: yeah, there's been a number of, of studies with that. And, and it's not my, my area, but you can even show, for example, that metastas- you can cells from one metastasis can form another metastasis. So there's, there's, they're all contributing to this burden of circulating, you know, tumor cells. And you can show that a lot of metastasis come referentially from a single region of the tumor. And, and so I, I would say that there's, there's at least a fair understanding of, of how that process works in general. I, there, okay. As always, there are many things that still have to be answered. And sometimes the initial uh, answers to a question don't end up being the final answers to the question. So it's still a work in progress
1: if, if someone looks at a liver tumor versus a pancreatic tumor versus brain tumor, et cetera, are there recurrent themes in terms of structure in each of these types of tumors? Like if you're looking at liver tumors, do they always tend to have a similar structure? And if so, what is the underlying structure of various tumors?
2: Well, I think that the pathologists will, will frequently, you know, can say, well, this looks like a breast cancer. This looks like a liver cancer. You know, they, they have certain characteristics that are, uh, of the cell morphology as well as the, you know, how they cluster together that is typical of, of these tissue of origin. So they carry that, that tissue of origin in, in various ways. For most of the life of the cell uh, of cancer, there, there is a, what's called a, a de-differentiation over time. So a, a differentiated tumor is one that looks quite a bit like the original Tumor. They they can form almost duct-like structures, for example, in a breast cancer. They can, you know, squamous cancers can can have regions that look a lot like components of the skin. I mean, it's disordered, but at least it sort of recapitulates that that organization. And then you typically go from a from well differentiated to moderately differentiated, to poorly differentiated, to undifferentiated. Some tumors never reach that 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 final undifferentiated state. But there is, on the whole, I think a general progression to become more and more, you know, looking like, you know, single cell, just a, a mass of single cells with that are sort of chaotically uh, interacting, as opposed to these other more differentiated tumors where they they do recapitulate uh, imperfectly the, um, the the structure of the of the tissue of origin.
1: Okay, so they do seem to model the tissue they came from. Or at least attempt to.
2: Yes, and I, and I to me, that you know, that's a. It's an interesting question about why they do that. So, so why if if they if you have if you just said that the individual cell is the evolutionary unit of selection, why do they form pseudoducts? And and to me, that's a that's a really good question, and frankly, it worries me about what what's going on there. I think what happens is that there's some evolutionary advantage to to that structure that they that there and, and you can there there's there's been research in herds where you, the phenotypic properties of the members of the herd and how they vary can influence the success of the herd. So where again, you have an individual unit of selection, but the herd is a sort of group and there can be some selection on the groups so, so that the members within the herd are, are, are non-random. Now, that's a difficult problem because, again, if each each individual cell replicates itself, then that organizational structure can be lost just because they're not proliferating in sync. So I, I think that, and, and I suspect that's why you get this transition from sort of well-differentiated to ultimately to, you know, poorly differentiated or undifferentiated. But but that, that's a theoretical.
1: What about cellular memory? If something was, a you know, a ductal cell, and now it's, it's, you know, divided and turned cancerous. It would okay. still retain, I would think, not only the localized <laughs> signaling from other cells, but it would also retain maybe a cellular memory of its differentiation and its, its job. Sure. It,
2: it, the, the thing is that in an evolutionary context, you have to think of uh, what is the benefit that the cell gets from that? Or is it strictly, you know, is, is, there, is there something about that, that, that it, it's, it's attachment to other cells, even, even if it's loose? What benefit? What what is what is gained from that? It, it, because there's a cost to it. That, you know, it's, it's essentially a, 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 you know attached to another cell. Some energy is required for that. But there has to be a gain. And so um, you know, evolution is this constant optimization process uh, where the cost benefit of any of everything that the cell is doing is on the table. So it's like so. We, and it's interesting that Darwin. When he when when he thought about the cavefish, um, couldn't he could understand why um, the eyes would not be used, but he couldn't understand why they would be lost. I and mean, literally, cavefish have no eyes. And and the the answer to that is that there's a cost for the eyes. the the the, the, the cavefish have to uh, invest resources in making eyes, in maintaining eyes, uh, in dealing with maybe the the rare infection that comes through an eye and and so forth. And so that it's that cost, it has no benefit, but it has a cost. And that that means that it has a negative evolutionary selection pressure and will tend to be lost over time. And so I guess what I'm saying is that um, if the cells of, let's say, breast cancer are forming pseudoducts so that they they are uh, attached to each other in some kind of loose way, that it's not likely that there's that that's just a random event. It, it's more likely that the the cells are getting something from it, and they're optimal. It's not the optimal status of the cells. And so eventually, they will tend to evolve, so they become totally independent of other cells. But but initially, that there is some connection that benefits them somehow.
1: Okay, gotcha. Do you know of anyone that's looked at, let's say, electronic health records for? millions of people that have had cancer and see if there's any commonalities in people that develop liver cancer versus pancreatic, et cetera? Has anyone done that?
2: Well, there's there's certainly known factors. Uh, for example, if, uh, if you've had hepatitis B or C or D, um, you're, you're highly likely to get uh, liver cancer. If you have cirrhosis because of alcohol, you're highly likely to get uh, I mean, it greatly increases your risk, uh, smoking and lung cancer and so forth. For others, where pancreatic cancer is is, is probably a good example, um, to the best of my knowledge, there, there have not yet, you know, people have extensively reviewed the clinical history of individuals that get pancreatic cancer and, and have not yet found some, you know, either inherited trait or some life, something about how people live that can identify a risk. I, I always, so one of the, when I first left residency and went to um, Fox Chase, I, I attended a lecture and a, uh, an epidemiologist presented data that, that had just been published in the New England Journal and there was just hysteria in the, the literature about it. So I remember it very well. And he showed that coffee drinkers tended to get pancreatic cancer um, and, and just just hysteria. And so, and over that time now, many studies have have come out on pancreatic cancer, and I think it's always been interesting to me that since that time, you know, studies have shown that, well, it doesn't really change your risk. You know, drinking coffee does not change your risk, and even some studies have suggested that uh, drinking coffee decreases your risk of pancreatic cancer. So, I, I guess my my point is it's really hard to do those those kinds of uh, investigations, and so, you know, honing down on on a relationship between you know lifestyle and and many of the cancers has really not been possible uh, uh, up till
1: now. Yeah, just figured, you know, there's vast amounts of electronic health data. I wonder if they could <laughs> find correlations, and if anyone looked, but you know, it's yet another <laughs> another project to do. So,
2: and, and there have been a lot of studies. I mean, the, if if you look around, I mean, the, the number of studies that have you know, try to find a lifestyle uh, factor that, you know, results in high risk for, you know, every type of cancer that exists. You know, some of them have been very similar, smoking and lung cancer, as I said, but, but most of them have have really not. And, and what you, you constantly get are these, like, you know, uh, studies that come out and, you know, they say like broccoli for colon cancer, there's hysteria for uh, about two days in the press and then it goes away and and it turned out that another study doesn't show it and and something as easy as uh, to me should be as easy as should we take should we be taking uh, aspirin to prevent our and there's those studies are all over the place so it, i think it's very difficult to do them and 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 i, I just i've kind of ignored them to, to be honest because i i they just don't seem to have a consistent
1: story uh in, in you know, my in anyway. Well, what what parts of cancer do you think need some underlying basic theory to be developed? You know, okay. what's missing in our understanding of cancer? Why haven't we solved it yet? What Again, if we're looking at a fundamental level, what do you think is missing?
2: Yeah, I, I don't. I think that our theory for, for the carcinogenesis, for the process that makes cancer, but there's a, there's a number of reasons that that just doesn't fit well with with evolutionary theory, for example, and does not fit with some um, empirical observations, particularly recently. So I think that we've tended tended to be what's been called cell-centric in in these approaches. We tend to view the cancer cell as as simply isolated in itself, as opposed to part of a system of tissue uh, and other normal cells, tissue structure and so forth. The other theory I think that's, that's been missing is is in treatment. I think that we've really kind of if there's any theory behind at all, it's this idea that um, the more cells you kill, the better that you do and and I think that's been and this idea of magic bullets, which I think has been around for for more than a century, the idea that what you need to do is find a a, a, a an agent that, kills cancer cells selectively and leaves normal cells on, unscathed is the ideal cancer treatment agent, and we have to find something like that. So to, to me, those those are the two that come to mind as in need of theory okay. at the moment.
1: What role do you think microbiome plays in cancer? Um, the reason I ask is I, I interviewed yes. a lady named Florencia McAllister who studied pancreatic tumors, and she found that there was a microbiome not only in the pancreas, but the pancreatic tumors had a slightly different microbiome themselves. So, you know, if a cell turns cancerous, I would think it's it's membrane expression of various antigens and ligands changes. And, and so it would attract sure. different localized microbes that would partner with it, feed it metabolites, et cetera. What do you think?
2: I mean, I think that's plausible. You know, again, the, the, the problem is that that we we keep making these observations without any good theory. So if the, Microbiome affects, let's say, cancer, uh, uh, the development of uh, colon cancer, which which would make perfect sense. So then the question is, you know, how does it do it? What are the factors that that specifically, you know, draw a line from here to there? How how does this does the change in the microbiome um, microbiome alter the mucosal surfaces that then gives rise to uh, cancer? The problem with, with 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 microbiome stuff, and I think with things like diet, you know, just what we just talked about, or other lifestyle things is that there's a, is that human beings are often inconsistent uh, the, the microbiome you know can change overnight it can be different in different places in the colon for example uh just as our diet can change on a day-to-day basis it can change over over a lifetime and so forth it's hard to track down the effects of something that's often that's always in flux and to really connect those dots from, from that to a cancer Be, because it, you know it's likely that if a cancer in for example, develops over a period of 10 years, that power-up, you know that, that cancer that, that's developed, you know has probably been exposed to a large number of microbiomes over those years. What was their role at these different steps, different stages of the process? And, and I'm not saying there aren't any. I'm just saying it's very difficult to know that. And I think it's another good example of how we, we really need you know consistent theory. To to put all these things together,
1: yeah, makes sense. Okay, I was just wondering, in terms of uh, viruses causing cancer, what's what's the current understanding on how they do that? You know, HPV and some other ones.
2: Well, I think there clearly are viruses that cause cancer. They are causative of cancer. They they um, HPV being a great example of the of how the virus gets into the cell, takes over much of the DNA, you know, molecular machinery of the cell, and you know it does so for the purposes of the virus, but at some point, you know things can go awry, and you you end up getting a cancer cell forming, and and therefore cancer. And I think that that's I, I think those are that's a fascinating dynamic. is is really really interesting. The, the conventional wisdom now is that perhaps ten to twenty percent of cancers are caused by viruses. People that study this sort of thing tend to think that's an underestimate that it's, you know, much, a much greater number. And, and I you know, I, clearly there are, it's, there are times when it's causative, you know, whether uh, lung cancer, for example, you know, there's um, – everybody knows that smoking is, you, you know, is a causative factor. And yet there are also people that have measured HPV that have found HPV genes in lung cancer. So is that mm. – part of it or not. And, and and it's interesting, I was at a conference once where someone presented uh, brain cancers and they, this viral signature, you know, in all of their patients. And someone in the audience got up and said, you know, we've done that same study and we have found that signature in none of the patients. So again, difficult uh, experiments to do, but where, where, where there's a clear connection, cervical cancer and HPV and
0: head, neck yeah. cancer
2: and it's unfortunate for the patients, but it's a, it's a wonderful laboratory to look at the underlying dynamics that, that, that are, and, and, you know, in terms of developing theory for how cancers develop, you know, those dynamics are, it's important that they be consistent with theory. And, it's, and, and you know, I, and I, I've been involved in this. It's very nice because it's pretty well developed. We, we know a lot about um, what goes on there, and it, and, it, and it does provide a lot of really good insights in, into
1: how cancers uh, form. Okay. I would ask you more about that, but I know that's not really like your, your area of focus. You just did a whole book on viruses. so Yeah, but when it comes to cancer, like, you know, a, a number of questions arise, but, you know, we'll have to table them for a later time. There'll be a, a you know a viral cancer. There's a whole book to be done on that, I'm sure, with all the interesting things that would come out of it. But. And
2: people are using viruses to, to treat cancer. I
1: mean, it's yep. <laughs> so all over the place. Have you looked into uh, liquid biopsies at all? Do you have any insight or knowledge into, um, you know, what kind of biomarkers liquid biopsies would look at? You know, they, do they come from extracellular vesicles? You know, what are your thoughts there?
2: Yeah, I think that it's, um, you know, again, that's it, a, it's a very promising area of research. I mean, there, there's a number of things that you could use that for. One is just detection. Can you, can you find something in the blood? that tells you that there's a cancer developing and you need to find it. That would be great. You know, people have thought that, I mean, there was an infamous paper in the New England Journal decades ago that claimed that there's certain proteins in the blood that if you found them, there was a high incidence of cancer that never panned out. And there are various reports that come up you know, saying that you can, you can predict the, you know, imminent development of cancer through various um, molecular things you can, you can identify in the blood. And, and, and that would be great. I think that those are all still, I would say, in development, you know, works in progress. The, the other thing that, that which is wh- where I'm kind of more interested in is the, the use of these molecular diagnostics to understand the intratumoral evolution over time, how does um, as you're treating a patient, how do can you see evidence for developing uh, resistance? And can you can it be used to give you a sense of what how, of how large that resistant population is and the strategies being used to develop uh, resistance? And again, you mean uh, resistance uh,
1: after after chemotherapy or at what
2: point? Well, to anything, you know, therapy, target therapy in all of those, in, you know, in any treatment of cancer right now, resistance is, is, the evolution of resistance is is typically the biggest barrier to the development of, uh, to, to curative outcomes. I mean, in, in most cancers now, there's at least one drug that's, I, I would say, reasonably effective, if not highly effective, and yet, in, in the metastatic setting, and yet, cures are rarely seen, and it's because even if you can reduce the population down by, you know, two, three orders of magnitude, there's always cells that are present that are resistant. And eventually, those cells can proliferate and become, the tumor will recur, they're resistant to the treatment. So you have to stop that and go to something else. And usually, once that, once that initial strike, once you evolve resistance, Uh, And each subsequent treatment becomes less and less effective.
1: Yeah. I guess if you better characterize the, you know, the heterogeneity of a given tumor or set of tumors, and then you apply the right cocktail of chemotherapy that was really, you know, designed to knock out just Mm -hmm. about all the major groups or types of Mm -hmm. cancer cells that might work better than what they're doing now.
2: Yeah. It's, you know, there's a, a a couple of things to, to think about. One, of course, if, if, if you think that perhaps every cubic centimeter of tumor, gram of tumor, has a billion cells, then a 100 gram tumor, which is, which is not particularly large by oncology standards, has way more cancer cells than there are human beings on Earth. So think about how could you kill every human being on Earth without eradicating all the other populations on Earth, without essentially destroying the planet. And the, the problem is that it's not just the sheer size; it's the heterogeneity of people. You know, there, you can see that in pandemics. You know, there's some people that die from a, of a from a virus, uh, others don't. Some aren't are virtually not symptomatic. And the, the other thing is that there's they they people live in different areas. You know, there's there's different environments. People live in caves. People live in big cities. You know, people live out in the country. So you know, there, there's. There's, there's both the phenotypic heterogeneity of a large population, and there's also the diversity of their habitats of the of, of the environment around them. Uh, um, and so, think about how could you you know eradicate that population. Now, if what what we've learned in HIV is that if you take you know three drugs or four drugs and put them together, each of them targeting different components of the virus, you can if not eradicate the population, at least knock it down to the point where it's, uh, it becomes unmeasurable for prolonged periods of time. Now, you, you have to remember, of course, that uh, the HIV virus has, I think, eight genes. You know, humans have close to 20,000. So that, you know, taking the lessons from HIV therapy and applying them to human therapy, to human cancers, you know, you have to be careful about. So, for example, you could take if you have two drugs, if you add a third drug, and you give all those together, you're still giving it to a population of 100 billion, and so you know within such a large number of very heterogeneous cancer cells, the probability there there is a reasonable probability that there's that you will find cells that are resistant to all three, uh, not just two. So one of the things that you know we've talked about is that you know instead of doing it that way, give you know, give an initial treatment with, let's say, one drug, um, knock down the tumor. If you can knock the tumor down from, you know, 100 billion cells to, let's say, 1 billion cell or, say, 100 million cells, and then give another drug or, or give two or three drugs, the probability of finding resistance to that combination of two or three drugs in 100 million cells is much smaller than 100 billion cells.
1: Right. So, well, what if, so what if you um, were able to um, to determine... If I give a certain chemotherapeutic agent to, you know, liver cancer cells, they'll tend to mutate in such a way as to, to make them now susceptible to agent B. So, Absolutely. you know, has that been figured out where they deliberately drive the cancer mm-hmm. down a path where other stuff will affect it?
2: Yes. Yeah, so and we've, we've done models of that and we call them, uh, you know, double bind therapy where, and, and the goal is to, and, and, and ideally this is, this would be to me the ideal way to to treat a cancer. You you treat, you get an effect, and you also understand the adaptive strategies that are going to evolve in response to your therapy so that your follow-on therapy then is deliberately ma- uh, made to target that that response um, and, and so on and so on. And, and, and I, you know, that would be ideal. It's hard to get drug companies and, I guess, treating physicians to think that strategically and, and you know, so, to me, that makes perfect sense, but, but it, it's, uh, in practice, simply not done, and, and I think that it, it really, we should be considering that. I, I, it, it happens that there was a study that was performed at Moffitt that where I think this occurred inadvertently, they took patients with small cell lung cancer who had already been through several treatments. It's typically, small cell lung cancers get, at the time, they, got a, uh, they start with a, a platinum-based therapy and they tend to get a very good response, but then the tumor comes back and they then get another type of therapy, you know, tumor comes back. So this was now third line therapy where they, they gave them a P53 vaccine. So P53 is a, is a protein that does, among other things, controls repair of DNA breaks and, and, and is often mutated in uh, cancers. And they, they treated 30 something patients. They got one minor response. And so the, the, the trial you know, basically failed. But what they then did was they, they, they then gave these patients fourth-line chemotherapy. Now, historically, less than 5% of the patients should uh, respond to that drug. And in this case, almost 70% of the patients responded. And the patients that got really good antibodies during the previous trial, that got antibodies against the P53, got the best response. And I think that was that was a great example. I think what I, my if I put my evolutionary hat on, what I would say is that the cancer cells responded to this p53 vaccine by simply uh, reducing expression or or just eliminating expression of p53. But then when you, when you throw cytotoxic drugs on them, the if you don't have p53 around, um, you can't repair the DNA toxicity of those drugs. And so, you know, the, the cells died. And now, to me, that's a perfect example of a double-bind kind of treatment. And and it, it, it to me, it works works out perfectly well. But we never do it. I mean, in practice, then yeah, even though we demonstrated a, a way to do it, it didn't. And, and I guess the sort of tragic story is that the company that made the P53 vaccine went out of business immediately because it was a negative trial. And to, but, uh, you know, it's a shame because in fact, I would say that's not a negative trial. And you simply use that, you know, it's a, sort of a baked switch kind of thing. You know, you, you push the tumor yeah. to evolve in one direction. And then, you know, it wasn't very effective because the tumor could, could adapt so quickly. But what you've done is made them weak. Uh, you know, you've made them susceptible to another type of therapy. To, you know, to me, that's, that's a great outcome. Um, but in the way that we evaluate drugs these days for cancer treatment, that was a failure. And and it would never be approved. So you know, it's just it's just the way things are, I
1: Well, very good, Robert. We're um, we're out of time. I thought we would solve cancer while we're on this call, but you know, we haven't. But I yeah. know we've uh, we've okay.
2: contributed to the. Well, we'll try again. We can, we, you know, give me another hour. We'll
1: do it. Just just to give you an <laughs> idea, I looked on I looked on PubMed. Uh, there's like 4.2 million papers on cancer, and that's just the public ones, yeah, you know. That's crazy. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, you know, that's, so that's what got me interested in the, in the math, because when I, when I first started to learn about cancer, what, what you had is an enormous amount of data, but no organization. And in physics, this is the kind of thing that happened when, like, when, with planetary motion. And, you know, there's been various times in, in, in physics where they just had lots of data and just couldn't fit it together at all. And, and you couldn't do it until you developed theory, theory that, uh, that was, was consistent with so that's my argument for doing the math. It doesn't, <clears throat> nobody else believes it, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm still
1: in there plugging away at it. So. Right on. Well, Robert, thank you for coming back. It's been great to talk to you again, and, and I really appreciate it. Sure. Nice to talk to you. If you like this podcast, please
0: click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.